Our first devotion this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 2. It's, it's all about how. When it comes to living the life, how do we do this? What's our ability? Dear people of God, one of the uh, biggest tech developments currently going on is, is called AR. It's augmented reality. Augmented reality is is a new thing, and maybe you just heard about it in the last year when the new iPhones came out because they're capable of AR, but it's a, a big deal, and it's going to have major implications for life going forward. Now, AR is different than VR, though. VR is virtual reality. See, virtual reality is when you, when you put on these goggles, when you put on this headset, and and it replaces everything that you see and hear with a different, a virtual reality. Augmented reality simply takes everything that you currently see and hear and, and lays sensory information, new things to see and hear over the top of it. And the goal is to alter your perception of the world around you. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Because... AR, augmented reality, that, that's not really a new thing. The tech is new, but altering the perception of, of the world? Oh, that's not new. That's something that, that people have been doing for thousands of years. Right? We, we take a look at the world and we go, oh, what a mess. Thank God I'm not part of the problem. That's augmented reality. That's not really the case. The hard part is we don't like to, to see that reality, do we? We don't like to, to think about that. We like to, to put in the goggles and go about, the, go about our days thinking, you know what, we're pretty good people by nature. We're decent. All of these good things, you know, God is kind of lucky to have us here on earth. That's an augmented reality. Because the, rea the real reality, that's a perception. The reality is sadly very different. And the, the person who judges and, and informs us, tells us what reality is, is the one who knows perfectly, objectively, right and wrong. And the one who holds eternity in his hands. It's God. And God says, there's a very, simple, a very simple formula, a very simple criteria for being, spending eternity with him in heaven, in perfection, and being banished and abandoned and sent away from him forever in hell. And that criteria, very simply, is to live the life perfectly, with no exceptions. Now, if we take off our augmented reality goggles for a moment and look at ourselves, can we say, I've done that? Or do we need to alter our perception so that we are, are comfortable with ourselves? See, the problem is that God says, live the life, and we don't. And we see that in our first scripture reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. It begins at verse 1, 
The Apostle Paul writes down God's words and he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now I mentioned the Apostle Paul is the one that God used to write these words down. And you notice he, he lumps himself into there, doesn't he? He says, all of us. He says, me too. We're all, we are all, every single person is born into this world DOA. Spiritually. Spiritually dead on arrival. And then we have this, this perfect life that God desires for us, and we don't. We don't do it. Instead, well, instead of doing what God says, we do what we say, what we want. We gratify the cravings of my flesh, right? The appetites that live deep in our hearts. The appetites for, I mean, hunger, but not just like I need to fuel up my body, but in a self-destructive way. The appetite for, for alcohol, for mind-altering drugs, the, the appetite for lust, for greed, for gossip, for all of these things. And, and what does he say we do? Can't really deny it, can we? We gratify, we, we feed the cravings of our sinful flesh. See, that's why it's so hard for us to live the life. You ever wonder why life is hard? Look no further. It's not God's fault. It's our own mess. We make it and then we live in it. And that's why it's so hard to, to live the life God wants because we're born in this sin and we, we commit this sin, the breaking God's commands every single day. And so we like to flip on the augmented reality goggles, don't we? We like to pretend everything is good. All, all of that's out there might be bad, but, but not in here. This I'm good. I'm the one lone bastion of virtue and decency in this world. But if we actually take off those goggles and we look at what God says, what more is there to say? I mean, really, this should be the end of the story, right? We are objects, and we are by nature deserving of God's wrath. But God doesn't end the story there. Look at how he continues in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
Twice in that section, the Apostle Paul beautifully, clearly, simply says, it is by grace you have been saved, right? Grace is, is God's undeserved love. Maybe if we wanted to use kind of the picture that he's been talking about here for our first takeaway, we'd, we'd describe it like this, that grace is seeing the reality that I deserve God's wrath, but he punished Jesus instead. And it's not because he saw you and he saw me and he said, boy, you guys are really trying hard. I'm going I'm to cut you some slack. I'm going I'm to do you a solid. Right? It's a gift. The Bible makes that beautifully clear. It's a gift from God that comes to us through faith. Not because of what we do. Not, not because of even our best efforts, which still fall short. Instead, God placed all of our sins on Jesus on the cross. And Jesus could do that because he had lived the perfect life that God demands. And so now God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I see someone who's perfect. But not because we did it. And not because we tried really hard. But because Jesus did it all. He lived the life for us. And then he gave his life for us. So now when God sees you, he doesn't see perfection because of what you do, but perfection because of Jesus. What a beautiful thing then that we are no longer dead. We're alive. We are spiritually alive. And because of that, we are able to live life. True life, life the way God intended it. How, what does that look like and why? That's what we'll take a look at in a few minutes. But now, for now, just keep in mind how we're able to live for God. It's purely a gift from him. By his grace, apart from anything we do, that he has saved you and he has saved me. Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? I think we would say that there are different things that motivate us, right? At different times for different reasons. But one of them that I think is a, a universal motivator is fear. Fear is, fear is always there. And sometimes it's, it's right there and it spurs us to do things that, yikes, we would never do otherwise, right? Jumping out of a, a second story window because our house is on fire fear. But I think there's also times when fear is just kind of lurking and it's just kind of always there. It's, it's lurking in the shadows. It's hiding beneath the surface. Let me give you an example. Tomorrow morning when the alarm clock goes off, what's going to get you out of bed and on your way to work? Is it because your job is just so fulfilling? Maybe. Is it because you're a task-oriented person and if I don't get up and get going today, I don't want to see what the rest of my week is going to look like? Is it because the joy your coworkers bring into your life? Or is it because of fear? Is it because you rightfully are afraid that if I don't get up and get into work on time tomorrow and maybe a second day, 
that I'm not going to have to be afraid of it the third day because I'm not going to have a job to go to. And if I don't have a job to go to, I don't have a house to live in because I can't afford it. And I don't have gas I can put in my car because I don't have money. And I don't have money to buy groceries. And I don't have a purpose for my time and my day. Fear, especially on Monday mornings, is a powerful motivator. But fear is not a motivator when it comes to our relationship with God. When it comes to us living the life that God wants. And there's a reason for that. It, it ties in with what we just heard from Ephesians, but there's a, a verse in the Bible from 1 John where it says, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Now, if you remember what we just looked at in Ephesians 2, what did God do? He punished, but not the ones who were deserving. Instead, he punished Jesus. Why? Because of his grace, because of his undeserved, his perfect love. And because God loves me, because Jesus has paid the penalty, paid the price in full, that the punishment has, been, has already been um, paid, well, I don't, I don't need to be afraid, do I? I don't need to have any fear when it comes to, to me and God because he loves me perfectly. So instead of fear being a motivator when it comes to our relationship with God and, and living for him, instead love is the motivator. But, but it's not our love. And that's an important thing because our love sometimes is, is a little wishy-washy, right? It's a, little, it's a little hot and then a little cold. Sometimes we think of love as a feeling. But God says it, it's love, but it's not your love. It's, it's the love of Christ, Take a look at our second scripture reading from 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, when the Apostle Paul wrote those words and he, and he talked about how, how the love of God, Jesus' love for us, giving his life, how that compels us, he wasn't talking about how, boy, it makes me really feel like I should do this or I'm going to feel guilty. Because guilt is the result. Uh, guilt is what we have because of our sin and, and guilt needs to be punished. If you are guilty in a court of law, the judge rightly will punish you. But we aren't punished for our sins because Jesus was punished in our place, right? He, he died for me, for all. And so because we are forgiven by Jesus, even for the times we fail, because we are forgiven completely, fully, no strings attached, Paul isn't writing about that. He's not writing about the guilt or the fear. He's writing about this amazing, this awesome, this un, beyond what we can comprehend, but beyond what words can describe, love of Jesus. See, and that's why he says Christ's love 
compels us, right? See, that, it's our first takeaway that, this morning is that my motivation for fighting temptation, for living the life that God wants me to live, it's not because I'm afraid God won't love me anymore. Fear has no place here, but it's because he already loves me so much. When I grasp, right, the way it's described in the Bible, how wide and deep and high and beyond description God's love is, when I start to grasp that, well, it compels me is what Paul says. That word compel, though, is, isn't great in English, right? Because sometimes compel, well, it kind of has a negative connotation to it, right? A, a coach compels his players to run laps. And not because they want to, but because if they don't, well, there's going to be something far worse. That's not the kind of compelling God does. Compel in English sometimes has the idea of, of urging, and I think that, that carries some of the idea, but the, the original word that Paul wrote in Greek, it actually has not just a compelling, not just an urging or moving along idea, it has an, an all-consuming idea. That, that the love that Jesus showed for me, it just fills me in ways that I, I can't even describe. It, it overwhelms me in a good way. That it, it consumes my, my mind, my heart, my life. That when I stop and I, I think about that truth, that my Savior died for me, wow. And that brings us to the, the second point, our, our third takeaway, the second point for this one, that the life I live for God, I live because I'm filled with joy and with thanks for Jesus' death and resurrection for me. When I stop and I ponder the fact that I deserved, I deserved suffering, I deserved eternal suffering, I deserved death, I deserved the worst God could do to me, but instead, the perfect Son of God went in my place. When I consider how incredible His love is for me, I want to live for Him. I want to, to use the, the days and the hours and the minutes that He blesses me with, not to live for myself and certainly not to, to live in a way that brings Him dishonor, no, I want to use every, every day, every hour, every minute, every second in a way that, that, lo that shows love to him, that, that shows my joy and my thanks because I'm compelled, I'm, I'm consumed, I'm, I am motivated by the indescribable, overflowing love of my Savior for me. See, that's our why. That's why we live for God. Because he lived and he died. And he lives still now for me and for you. So now we've looked at how we live the life, right? 
that God is the one who gives us the ability because he saved us and he gives us life. We've looked at why it's not because of fear or because of guilt, but because of of the beautiful motivation of, of being filled up with the love of Jesus for us. And now the question comes up, what? What's the what? When it comes to, to living the life that God wants, what does God want? What does this look like? Because I think if you, if you took a survey of, of people, you'd get a wide variety, but I think there'd be, some things would be true. That, that in general, people think of, of grand gestures and amazing and selfless acts, right? These are the things that God wants us to do for him. But that's not exactly what God says. And God actually lays out a, a, a simple and a very clear description of, of what it looks like to live a life that's, that's filled with the Holy Spirit, that's, that's consumed by the love of Jesus for me. Take a look at Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. He starts out with the rotten fruit. He says, the acts of the flesh, the sinful flesh, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's the rotten fruit, isn't it? The hard part is, when we look it up on the screen, it looks rotten. It stinks. When we see it in other people, we go, oh, that's gross. But when we see it in our own hearts, there are times where maybe we don't go, ooh, yuck. But sometimes where we go, I'll give it a try. I'll peel that orange. I'll wash that, I'll wash that rotten peach and see what it's like. God says, whoa, friends, this is not good. This is a warning that you need to be aware of. Lust, sexual sins, debauchery is just throwing caution to the wind, wild, living for the moment with no care of any, any repercussions or consequences. Idolatry? Well, I would never bow down to an idol, but do you put anything ahead of God in your life? Does something else ever take the place of, of number one? Jealousy? Hatred? Fits of rage? Right? Losing it? Living for yourself rather than God? Dissension and faction? Right? Being divisive, envious, drunkenness? These are temptations that we know. We know because they're all around us in the world around us, but what's even worse is they're not just outside, they're even in, aren't they? They, these are, are temptations that flow from this sinful part that as long as we live and breathe on this earth are going to be, is going to be sinful. And so these temptations not just come from without, but even from, even from in here. And so living the life for God is never going to be easy as long as you are here on this earth. But notice, God is serious, right? He's not just like, well, try he warns against them, and he warns very clearly, he warns very strongly 
Because he wants you to understand this is dangerous. Sin is, is kind of like a drug dealer. Drug dealers don't just want to sell you one bag, one dose. They want to get you hooked. Drug dealers want to own you. And so does sin. Satan doesn't want you to just dip your toe in the water and try this once. He, he wants you to try it and go, ooh, I'm going back and back and back. And before you know it, that sin is now what defines you. It owns you. And so he warns very clearly and very boldly, don't, dear friends, watch out for this. Be careful, beware, because look what he says at the end. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, God warns about these temptations because sin doesn't just want you to try. Sin wants to own. And God says, for people who live like this, not just people who, who do this, who slip, who fall, who had one too many, who gave in to this temptation, but for people who jump right in and who have no desire, no desire, no no want of repentance, no desire for forgiveness, well, God has no part with them. And they're not going to be in his kingdom because they have, they have no faith. They, are, they live separated from him now and they will forever. God warns. And he says, you know, this is, this is a real thing, right? There's the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. But the the acts of the flesh, they're obvious. And here's the warning that God makes. And he makes this warning. It's our, our, first, or our take, first takeaway for this section, fourth overall. He's not saying don't, don't use this criteria to judge others. Use this to look at yourself. That my actions show on the outside the heart that's on the inside. See, and that's why he warns about the actions of the flesh, right? What we show to the world, what everybody sees, all of, these, all of these sins, not just to fall into, but to live and be owned by. So that's the negative example that God gives. Don't, don't produce this rotten fruit, dear friends. Don't live in this. Fight the temptation. And when you fall, turn to God and say, Lord, forgive. And he does. Instead, the contrasting fruit, the good fruit, is so drastically different. And it's different because it comes from a heart that's filled with the Holy Spirit. Take a look. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, one thing you might have noticed is that this isn't really a list of actions, is it? Right? God talked in the, in the first section about the, the actions that flow out of a, a sin-filled, dead heart, spiritually dead heart. And now he talks about not actions, but attitudes. And I think that's helpful to keep in mind because God doesn't give us this, this to-do list, does he? If you look through Scripture, God doesn't really say, here's a bunch of to-dos when it comes to living the life for him. He doesn't say, you know, some of those kind of 
stereotypical things, you know, help the little old lady across the street or in the grocery store parking lot. Make sure you go on a mission trip at least 300 miles away. Sell all of your possessions, 90% of them, and give it all to the poor. These are kind of stereotypical things, but they're not what God says. They might be the actions, the result that flow out of the heart, but really what God wants, what God sees is not action, but attitude. And that's our, our last takeaway this morning, that God doesn't prescribe a series of actions for my life. He describes the attitudes that flow from faith. And so he says, what flows out of you, dear Christian, dear child of God, who, who is alive spiritually, who has been saved by grace, who, who is filled and consumed with the love of God, what, what flows out of you? Well, he says love, right? And it's not just the pitter-patter, heart-fluttering kind of love. This is the, the selfless love. It's agape love. It's the exact same word for love that we just heard in 2 Corinthians 5. Christ's love compels us. His agape, his selfless love is what motivates us. That's the kind of love God wants us to have. That's the kind of love that flows out of a heart, the fruit of the Spirit living in us. Joy. Joy, I think sometimes people, people get confused between joy and happiness. Happiness is a, a, an emotion. Happiness is, is fleeting. Happiness is in the moment. Joy, joy is bigger than that. Joy is able to look beyond what's right in front of me, what's going on right now, how I feel. Whether that's good, whether that's bad, whether that's blah and in between. Joy is able to look beyond that and see that no matter how good or how bad the moment is, I have hope. I have a reason to look up, to look forward, to, to keep going. Because I know where I'm going and I know what it means for me right now. Peace, right? Hopefully we know what that is, that, okay, God loves me. Forbearance, that's simply patience. And, and in case you think that God, you know, gave you a fruit basket with all of these but not patience, that's not true. I had somebody tell me that once. Yeah, I think he skipped that one when he came to me. Nope. All of these are the fruit that flow out of a heart where the Spirit lives. Goodness, kindness, right? Generosity, doing things for others, not because of something that comes back to me. Gentleness. So does that mean you, you just have to be like this big teddy bear of a person who's just kind of a pushover and meek and mild? Not necessarily. But gentleness is the opposite of harshness, of brutal, right? Of, of rude, of blunt. Gentleness is, is the using your words and your actions and understanding they impact people. And, and even when you deliver difficult news or hard things to say that you do it in a way that shows love and care for that person. And then self-control. We know what that one is, don't we? Difficult though it may be, biting the tongue keeping the hand on the wheel, self-control. The beauty is that God says all of these attitudes, they flow out of the heart where God lives. 
They flow out of the heart that is motivated by the love of Jesus. And so living, in a, living a life for God, it's in a way kind of like a relationship, right? If you've ever been dating someone, you know that this is something that, that if the relationship is going to keep going, it requires this, this ongoing, slow building. Because imagine if you were dating someone who gave you this extravagant, unbelievable, incredibly expensive gift every four months. But the other three and seven-eighths months, they treated you like you didn't exist. How long would you be in a relationship? Four months and two days, right? To get the second gift? Maybe. But you wouldn't stick around long, would you? Because because this is not a relationship. This is not how it works. This is a, a relationship is this ongoing thing, right? It's not about the one big gesture. It's about the daily building. And that's what God says. It's not about the one big selfless action. It's about the daily attitudes that flow out of the heart where the Spirit lives by faith. See, living the life isn't easy. It's never going to be. Not this side of heaven. We might want it to be, and maybe we think it should be, but it won't be. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard, but I want you to stop for a moment, and I want you to consider that God did something bigger than hard. He did something that seems impossible. He loved the unlovable. He gave life to those who were spiritually dead in sin. He saved you and me when we deserved none of it. And now he's given you life. Life that that we have because of him. Life that knows my Savior and his overwhelming, overflowing love for me. Life that longs to live for him. And life that by the Spirit living in me, that as I hear his word, as that spirit works, these attitudes, they flow. They flow in me and they flow through me so that my life is for the glory of God. God grant you that life, day in and day out, filled with him. Amen.